Good morning, Eastminster. How are you? This is the portion of the service where many of you fall asleep. Just kidding. Try not to make that happen. Pastor Stan had presbytery this week and has asked me to fill in for him. Um, We read most of the text that I'll be preaching from today, so I am just going to finish off the text. I'm going to start in Colossians 1, verse 21, and I'm just going to read the next three verses. Here's what Paul says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for this word. We thank you that you're a God of mercy who gives us the clarity of your word, Lord, that we might know the truth. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, today that you would be in our hearts and minds, that you would allow us to see Jesus as he is, that we would be a church who knows truly that God is above all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Marquez. We're glad you're here with us this morning. A couple of years ago, I served on a team here at Eastminster with about 13 other folks, and we were given a task by the session to discern a vision for Eastminster's future. Now, as a team, we reviewed scripture, we looked at the history of our church, we looked at the demographics of East Wichita, and we spent a lot of time praying and just seeking the Holy Spirit's leading for the future of our church. In fact, Pastor Stan wrote an article about this last year in our spring Eastwind publication. So if you want uh, more than I just shared with you, Stan will highlight everything that that team did. One of the things that came about in the process or as a result of this discernment process was that this team articulated our church's values. And these values are intended to guide future decisions here at Eastminster. And so over the next six weeks, we will be preaching through Eastminster's values. And since I drew the short straw, I get the first value. And so if you look on your bulletin, you're going to see Eastminster's values. So if somebody were to ask you, what are the values of your church, you could point them just to that. And so today, I'm going to preach on God above all. This value is a reminder to Eastminster Church that God's glory, the very thing you and I were created for, is what we strive for, not only as individuals, but especially as a church body. And so we're going to look at the text today, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, to help us drive this point home about what it means to actually believe and live as though God is above all. It's been said that until the church is confronted with false teaching, can she begin to love and enjoy the wonders of true belief 
We call that orthodoxy. Every day, Christians in the church are bombarded with false teaching. We are enticed by the world to conform to the world's godless standards. And we are deceived even from within the church to follow false teachers. And a church, friends, that is deceived either by the world or from within by false teachers cannot bring glory to God. It appears from the text that was just read for us throughout um, um, the worship that Paul is beginning his attack on false teaching. Now, it's, it's hard to pinpoint the exact nature of the false teaching that Paul is attacking and that was going on in that church there in the city of Colossae. But what we do know is that it was a mixture of what's known as Gnosticism and Jewish legalism. Gnosticism taught that God is good, but that matter, that is the stuff that we're made of, is evil. And so the implications of this is that Jesus is not God. The Gnostics also taught that there was a secret and higher knowledge above Scripture that was necessary for enlightenment and for salvation. I remember a number of years ago, a book came out. It was called The Secret. Friends, Jesus doesn't have any secrets. He's told us everything he wants us to know. In fact, he himself in his own earthly ministry submitted himself to the word of God as recorded for us in the Old Testament. In fact, the scripture says that Jesus is the word of God. It's his word that carries authority. And there is no knowledge outside of what Jesus has said that can save me and that can save you. On the other hand, we had Jewish legalism. And for those of you who don't know what legalism means, it's simply a term that we employ that tells us that you cannot get to God by your own works. There is nothing you can do to merit God's favor. And that's because the scripture has already told us in the book of Romans, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And then James, in his letter, he tells the church that if you break just one of God's commands, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And so friends, it doesn't matter how many good works you do, and it doesn't matter how guilty you feel for your sin. Neither one of those will garner God's love and attention to you. It can't happen. You can't earn your way to God. And so we see clearly that the false teachers in the church of Paul's time denied the divinity of Christ and the Jewish legalists denied the work of Christ. They said Jesus' work in his life and in his death was not sufficient for you because you have to add something to it. Friends, let me tell you that all false teaching has appeal. It sounds soothing at times. It always promises you comfort. It will always let you fulfill any desire that you have. But be assured that all false teaching, all teaching that is not grounded in the person and work of Jesus is deadly. 
And so for us to be a church that places God above all, we must be a church that is able to articulate why Jesus is above all. And so how can we keep from being seduced by false teaching? And I want to illustrate this. There's two epic poems in ancient Greek mythology. One is Homer's The Odyssey, and the other was written by Apollonius Rhodius, and it's called Argonautica. In each of these epic tales, we see how two men dealt with the perils of deception and seduction as they encountered these mythological creatures called the sirens. In Greek mythology, the sirens were dangerous half-women, half-bird creatures that inhabited small islands in the Mediterranean Sea. The sirens would enchant and seduce the ships that would pass by as the sailors would listen to their melodious songs. It sounded pleasing to the ear. And as the ships would sail nearer to the coast, the ships would hit the rocky coast to sink the ship. And the men, when they were in the sea, these sirens would come down and begin to devour and eat them. Well, in Homer's Odyssey, there was one way in which Odysseus dealt with the sirens. He had his men who were commandeering the ship put beeswax in their ears. But Odysseus knew the lovely sound of the sirens, and so you know what he did? He tied himself up on the mast And he was bound by it, but he didn't put any beeswax in his ears because he wanted to hear the song of the sirens. It sounded good, though he knew in the end it would be deadly. And so that's how he sailed safely past those islands. But I like the way that Orpheus in the Argonautica dealt with that. Orpheus was a renowned musician. And as his ship sails near the islands where the sirens are, he begins to play his lyre and he begins singing himself. His music and his voice surpass the beauty of that of the sirens. So much so that his crew was drawn more to his singing and his voice. Friends, this is is how we as Christians deal with false teaching. We don't camp out to study every false religion on the planet. We put our faces in the book of Scripture and we begin to see Christ as He is. He has greater appeal than anyone or anything else that this world can offer us. Paul tells us in verse 15, because He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul dismantles this false Gnostic notion that matter is evil by saying that Christ, the image of Christ, the visible Christ, is the invisible God. Implicit within Paul's statement is the great mystery of our Christian faith, the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus Christ is truly God, and Jesus Christ is truly man. Paul then tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. In Jesus' day, and even many cults today would say that this just simply means Jesus is only a man because, see, he was born first. But when we read the Psalms, particularly Psalm 89, listen to what the psalmist says as he recounts God's covenant that he made with David. 
The psalmist says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You and I know from the book of Samuel that King David was not the oldest or the firstborn among his brothers. In fact, he was the youngest. And so what we read as God is making this covenant with the Davidic line is that to be the firstborn means to have the highest place of honor. And so when Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, it means that Jesus has the highest place of honor over all that he has created. And Paul goes on to expound that by saying it was by Jesus that all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. One of my favorite devotional books that my wife and I have read with our children, and we did read all of them, was a book by Louis Giglio, and it was called Indescribable, 100 Devotions About God and Science. And commenting on John 1, 3, where the gospel writer says, through him all things were created, which is basically what Paul is saying in this text, Giglio reminds us of the power of Jesus. And he tells the children in the book to consider all the stars that Jesus made in the Milky Way galaxy. We inhabit the Milky Way galaxy and there's approximately 400 billion stars in our galaxy. And then Giglio goes on to say, but did you know that there are about 100 billion galaxies? Did you know that comets can have vapor trails over 10,000 miles long and that if you put that vapor trail in a bottle, it would only cover one square inch? Did you know that a bullet that shoots out of a rifle travels roughly 1,800 miles per hour, but the earth orbits around the sun at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour? And did you know that a single human chromosome has enough information to fill 400, no, 4,000 volumes of literature? This Jesus created that. This Jesus, the image of the invisible God, created all of that. Paul goes on to say that Jesus also created thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. In the last song we sung, cherubim and seraphim, these were angelic beings, mighty and powerful. Even the seraphim and the cherubim bowed down before God. It was Jesus who created the angels. The angels bow down to Jesus. And did you know that in Jesus' day, I'm sorry, in Paul's day, that many of the false teachers actually worshiped angels. And Paul says... We need to worship the one who made the angels. Paul goes on to say that Jesus is before all these things. He has supremacy. And even right now, Jesus is holding everything together. And even when things seem to fall apart in our lives, it's only because of Jesus' sovereign permission that that happens. Friends, you can rest assured that Jesus is good and you can trust him. In fact, if you don't, your life will unravel. 
and it will be difficult. In verse 18, Paul goes on to say that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul has spoken of Jesus' supremacy over the entire created order and now he says he is supreme over new creation. New creation is the church. New creation is the life that was given to you and I when the Holy Spirit came in us and awakened us to the goodness of Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, as Paul says. Now, we know Jesus was not the first person to come back to life. You remember even in his own ministry when his friend Lazarus had died, Jesus brought him back from the dead. But the difference between Lazarus coming back from the dead and Jesus coming back from the dead is Lazarus was simply resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. And so in simple terms, Jesus' resurrection is the down payment for your resurrection and for mine. He is the firstborn among those who have been resurrected. That means Jesus holds the highest place of honor in the church among his people in all the world throughout history. This means that Jesus is our Lord. He is worthy to be obeyed. And when we obey him, when we obey everything he commands, this testifies to the fact that we believe he is above all. And so Paul goes on in verse 19 and says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you hear that, church? Let me ask you the question. How did God reconcile all things to himself? How did he do it? Through the shedding of the blood of Christ. A church that claims as one of their values that God above all, is a church that can have no other answer for how the things in the world can be made right except through the blood of Christ. There is no true reconciliation outside of that. And it's because of that that all things will be made right. In 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was given the Templeton Prize, which is given annually to a person whom the judges believe has made exceptional, exceptional contributions to affirming life's spiritual dimension through insights and practical works. Solzhenitsyn was a Russian historian and author. He was imprisoned in his own country and he was later expelled from his homeland for his criticism of it. Solzhenitsyn survived eight years of gulag incarceration which he described in his writings as a place where people were sent to work themselves literally to death. Upon receiving the Templeton Prize, he gave an address titled Godlessness, the first step to the gulag. And here's a portion of what he said. More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disaster that had befallen Russia. They said, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history 
of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already committed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. In verse 21, the Apostle Paul actually sharpens the insights of Solzhenitsyn in recounting his own country's demise. It is true that man has forgotten God. But Paul says you are alienated from him and you are his enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We are alienated, friends, from God And we were his enemies because of our evil behavior. Beloved, false teachers will do anything in their power to diminish the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God. They will spend an exorbitant amount of time Telling you that you're good enough. Telling you that there's nothing wrong. Telling you that you're the victim. They're going to try to convince you that the world is the way it is. Because of God. Not because of man. Friends. False teachers will say anything. They will say God is the problem and man is the solution. But the gospel of Christ says that man is the problem and Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the solution. And the good news Paul tells this church whom he loves is but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Paul continues to combat this false view of Jesus by making sure that you and I know that Jesus came in the flesh and it is through his body being put to death that we could be reconciled. And because we are reconciled, God is gonna bring cosmic restoration to this place. Jesus had to suffer death because God's justice required it as payment for sin. And Jesus did this. And his death, for all who believe in him, makes us holy. His death makes us without stain. His death makes us free, as Paul says, from accusation. And so if you're here today and you feel dirty and ashamed, if you're here today and you know you're guilty, then come to Jesus. Because he will make you holy. Come to Jesus because he will cleanse you from all your shame and all your guilt. Come to Jesus because he loves you and he's willing to forgive you. This is Jesus, the king of creation, 
and the redeemer of mankind. He is good. Paul goes on to say in this final verse, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It sounds as though in this last verse for this morning that Paul is maybe expressing doubt in the faith that the church at Colossae has. It almost sounds a little bit like you can't have the assurance of your salvation unless you work really hard. But I'm going to bring those two verses together, 22 and 23, because I think, in fact, the way it's constructed in the original Greek, it's actually expressing Paul's confidence in the church. I think the church is doing well now to hold fast against this false teaching. And so let me read verses 22 and the first part of 23 together. Paul says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation since you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Paul has confidence in this church. His confidence is in the fact that these church members believe and know that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Paul has confidence in this church because he knows that they know Christ has supremacy over creation and authority over the church. Paul has confidence in this church because he knows that they know they have been reconciled to God through Christ's death. And Paul is confident in this church because he knows that they know that they are at peace with Jesus through his shed blood. Church, do you know that? Do you know that through Christ you are at peace with God? Moms and dads, do your children know that through faith in Christ they are at peace with Jesus? Grandparents, do your grandchildren know that through Christ they are at peace? Let us know that. Let us tell the world of that. Because this is what it means to be a church whose first value is God above all. To believe God is above all is to worship Jesus with excellence and with joy. To believe God is above all is to be Christians committed to holy living. To believe God is above all helps to spur us on to love each other, to lift each other up, to care for one another. To believe God is above all is to love not only our neighbors, but our enemy. To love the stranger and the foreigner. To believe God is above all is to let God lead us into taking this gospel message to the ends of the street and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We want to say thank you for sending us the God-man, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your excellencies. You retain the fullness of God, and yet 
You became one of us. Lord, we want to say thank you. And Father, I want to pray for Eastminster Church. I pray that we truly would be a church who believes that God is above all. And that that would be seen, Lord, in the fact that we embrace the true teaching of Scripture. It would be seen in the fact that we actually love each other, Lord. And that warmth would be felt by those who come to our church. I pray, Father, that we would continue to worship you in excellence and to declare to the world that you are worthy. Lord Jesus, you are the firstborn over all creation, and you are the firstborn among the dead, your church, Lord. This is great news, Father. And as we consider who you are, Lord, we now just say thank you. And we pray, Father, for this offering you have given to us in abundance, and now, Lord, we give only what you have required. And we pray that in our giving, Lord, you would be shown as the God above all to all the nations, Lord. Have your way with them. Father, we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.